and grow a D. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones of a long drive. Up close and personal. Just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to going deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you, Capital. You certainly are, and there is so much to go deep on right now. Too much, to be honest. Shout out to the boy Enoch Mwamba. We talked to him last week. He did the thing. Most outstanding Canadian, most outstanding player in the Great Cup. We will try to catch up with him later this week, but everything is a World Cup right now. And full disclosure, I have a list of notes just for myself. So I'm on point, making sure I'm talking about the right things. I have to make sub-notes to my notes because there's so much going on with the FIFA World Cup and it's changing minute to minute, day to day. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a breath, a step back. Me and Sho are going to give our take on everything that's going on, whether it's the migrant worker situation or the fact that multiple nations now are no longer allowed to wear their one love armband for captains because of the issues uh, in Qatar surrounding the gay community or the fact that i don't know uh, budweiser spent 75 million dollars to provide beer and there's no beer no moss no beer anymore no alcoholic beer anyways we gotta look at what is going on on the ground right now and and how we got here so here's what we're going to do in this episode peter galando who is a great writer for sportsnet he is in qatar in stadium actually we're going to catch up with him briefly, talk about what the feeling is, what the mood is right now after FIFA president Johnny Infantino had an hour-long monologue that was nonsensical and offensive for his opening press remarks. Then we're going to look at this big picture in terms of how we got here and how were these stadiums that Peter is now in built on the backs of migrant workers? What is the real cost of having the World Cup in Qatar. Once we have that framework, myself and show tomorrow, we'll give our take. We'll take a step back, take a breath and go deep and provide perspective. But I think it is really important to talk to the people in the know to inform ourselves about these issues before we jump off the top rope and get in on it. So stay tuned to this space as we'll have this continued conversation throughout the week. But right now, as I mentioned, Peter Galindo, he is there writing for not just Sportsnet, but the MLS in Qatar right now. We caught up with him to figure out what's the mood, what's the vibe, and if we try to address these issues, can we circle back to the fact that Canada is actually there for the first time in 36 years? And what is their camp and setup like? Because there are some questions about who will be fit and who won't be. But is Qatar fit to host a major event in the first place? Peter provides perspective right now. So, Peter, covering a World Cup, everyone excited for the football. And to start it, we have so many things to talk about that aren't on the pitch. Gianni Infanto's pre-tournament presser was supposed to ease tensions, and maybe they have now risen. What is it like on the ground in terms of the controversy about 
where these games are being played and the fact that, in a sense, they're the latest example of sports washing. Well, this is just it because when you look at all the issues that are off the pitch, I feel like the common denominator in all of it is, well, yes, these are magnificent modern stadiums, a lot of really good architecture. Um, The infrastructure in general might be lacking a little bit, but it's all modern. It's all very forward thinking. However, the problem is there was a massive human sacrifice paid in order for all of this to become a reality. And that's what it all comes back to. And the fact that you have Johnny Infantino and FIFA in, in, in essence, basically saying, all right, we have to choose between one of the two here. It's either going to be our sponsors or it's going to be the state. And so far, they have backed the state. And you're now seeing all these issues from, you know, the alcohol sales to the One Love armbands, which are now no longer being worn by all the countries who said they were going to wear them and are no longer doing so. So, honestly, really, all the big stories have really not involved soccer at all. They've all involved all the controversies, which I think we all probably could have seen it coming well before this tournament even started. See, it's funny because I thought, well, at least for a couple weeks, maybe they'll be on their best behavior and they'll act welcoming and they'll treat journalists fairly. But as you know, journalists have had footage taken from them and have been harassed. We went from having beer tents and gardens to no beer, even though Budweiser paid $75 million to be a sponsor of non-alcoholic beer, evidently. You're there. Is there feeling of apprehension, of tension, given that the tournament's barely started and every day there seems to be a new story, a new controversy? Me, personally, I haven't noticed much of a difference in terms of how I cover events. Really, the only difference is is just how much there is in terms of covering pretty much what I'm now calling all the debacles. Um, you know, I've, I've been greeted with, with a very friendly and, and accommodating attitude by the locals, by all the stadium workers, by all the employees. Um, but again, not everybody has the same sort of experience. I mean, I'm sure, um, you know, some of the LGBTQ plus journalists, the few that are here, are probably feeling a little more uneasy. I'm sure... Some of the female journalists are feeling a little uneasy in some ways. I can't really speak to their experiences, but, you know, the, the fact that there was even, um, I guess, second thoughts about coming sort of explains that, you know, just for being you, you, you have to be cautious about that. When we transfer to the matches and the actual tournament, you know, there's so many storylines that have been somewhat buried because of everything that's gone on to get this tournament in this country. Is there one storyline, whether it's Cristiano Ronaldo's ongoing saga or whether or not Belgium will finally cash in on the golden generation or will Messi get his last dance or Canada, obviously, uh, you know, being there for the first time. Is there one story that you are somewhat fascinated to see how it plays out over the next couple of weeks? I would probably lean towards Messi's swan song because I have to tell you, everywhere you go in Doha, 
there are Argentinians everywhere. And the common consensus among all of them, at least the ones that I've spoken to, is this is our most complete team in years. Messi is in incredible form. He loves playing for Argentina again, which hasn't always been the case. And there seems to be a tight-knit bond between the group. And the fact that they won Copa America last year against Brazil, who is the betting favorite, there's this thought that, listen, if they don't get it done now, they probably never will, or at the very least until the next generation of great players comes through. So that, to me, is what's going to be fascinating, is can he finally get that elusive World Cup and really add a lot of spice to the GOAT debate? You mentioned Brazil being the betting favorite the defending champions, although that's somewhat ridiculous to say in an international competition uh, when you're representing a nation. It's not like uh, North American sports, but but theoretically France would be a contender, except they're starting 11 at the best of times. Half of them are not going to be competing in this tournament, do have great depth, but what do you expect to see uh, from the France Federation given some of their questions specifically up front? I honestly don't know. Now, I think that in terms of their group, they have more than enough in them, even with all the changes they're undergoing, to be able to progress to the round of 16. Now, from there, depending on where they finish, they could actually end up drawing Argentina in what would be an exact rematch of 2018 when they faced them and had that amazing 4-3 thriller where Kylian Mbappe really announced himself on the world stage. Um, I feel like Argentina would probably be the favorite in the case. And it's not because France isn't talented. They definitely are. The problem is Didier Deschamps has this specific style of play, and he has trusted a lot of these players who are injured to fit into that system. And you can criticize it all you want, but it did get results, at least at the World Cup, maybe not so much to Europe. Um, and so by losing the majority of that spine, I feel like now, even with the likes of Aurelian Chouameni, who is in terrific form with Real Madrid, with Eduardo Camavinga, with, with everybody else, you can go through the list. I just don't feel like they have that uh, fluidity, that, that free-flowing energy that you would expect a team of this quality to have. But because of the way Deschamps likes the team to play, I just don't think they're going to be able to have their full potential unlocked. What? I think the question for Canadian fans is if and when will our side have their full potential unlocked? The injury questions about, quite frankly, their best player and Alfonso Davies returning from a hamstring. And I would argue their most important player in Stephanie Stacchio pulling the strings in the middle of the field who wasn't able to be a part of their uh, last match building up for the tournament due to injury concern. How do you expect John Herdman to set up his side, and do you expect him to potentially ease in you know, some of his hurt players into the tournament or um, go out and see if, if he can steal some points against Belgium? I personally believe that all of the injury doubts, so that's Milan Borian, that's Stefan Ostakio, that's Alfonso Davies, all of them are going to be fine. I saw them all in training yesterday. Um, Stefan Ostafio looked like totally normal. He was completing fast sprints and stopping on a dime and then turning very quickly. It looked like he was not hampered at all. Um, Alfonso Davies was the same. In fact, he, he ended up mentioning that he's ready to go. Now you expect players of, of his ilk to say that they are 90 minutes ready regardless. 
But the fact that Davies was confident in saying that and the way that he looked to start training kind of shows that, yeah, he's probably going to be at least ready to start, maybe not play the entire 90, but certainly ready to start. And Milan Borian, he took a little extra time to stretch and whatnot kind of in that abdominal area. And he looked pretty good and, and started training as normal with the rest of the goalkeepers. So I think that everybody is, is, is good to go. And listen, you're going to hear a lot of this during the tournament from Herndon because the mind games are, are real, right? And we saw that throughout qualifying. And given how big this stage is, and I guess how even despite their, their amazing story to qualify and everything, how relatively unknown Canada is, that's just going to throw another wrench into things because for all Roberto Martinez knows, he's going to have to prepare for all of Davies or Stafford and Borean to not play, but also be fully prepared for them to start right from the beginning. And that always adds a little of, you know, a, a bit of extra doubt. Well, the unknown is not just who will play, but how will Canada play? John Herdman has said they're going to play attacking football. They're going to be on the front foot, which is easy to say, but against the number two side in the world with, I would argue, the best midfielder in the world and Kevin De Bruyne, you can only do that if you actually have the ball. How do you expect Canada to set up? Do you think, given their speed, they will you know, be solid defensively and look to break on the counter and, and smash and grab a goal and get out with a point or maybe even more? Or do you think that they will be more positive in their play? I think that we're going to not see them deviate a lot from how they normally play. And, and that's just Herdman's MO. He wants them to play their way. He doesn't want to conform to the opponent. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to be on the front foot all the time. I'm sure they're going to pick their moments. But if we look at the projected 11, provided Davies and Ashtaki and Borean are fit, I expect them to be pretty much the same as that Japan game. So you've got Borean in goal. You've got Johnston, Vittoria, Miller in that back three in possession. Um, then you've got Atakubi and Buchanan as your wingbacks. I would imagine Tiva Hutchinson and Stefan Ashtaki will make up that double pivot with Junior Hoylet just in front of them. And then Alfonso Davies with Jonathan David uh, completing the 11. And Davies will be playing in a free role. Buchanan will have license to get forward. Atiba Hutchinson will probably drop into the defense a little bit to allow Alistair Johnson to get forward and launch in some crosses. Um, I really do believe that they're going to be almost the exact same team that we see for the last couple of years. And to be honest, I was quite concerned at the prospect until I saw them play Japan. Now, yes, Japan was missing half of their starters in that game. But the way that Canada was so diligent in tracking back and stopping those transitional opportunities and really after the first goal didn't give Japan too many looks at goal, that gives me confidence that they can actually adapt to this pace of play. Now, Kevin De Bruyne probably you know, is the X factor here. And you can say you want to man mark him. You can say you want to do all these things. The man is world class. He can find a way to get free. But if you can limit his damage then I feel like you will have a chance to be able to potentially get something, or at the very least, give the team a good showing to, to maybe get the rest of the teams and group up going, okay, Canada, we see you. Well, what a time to be a soccer fan in this country. Richie Larea and Kyle Lahren have been two of the better players for the national team in terms of getting this team to the World Cup and you've got them outside of your starting 11. The fact that we can have these conversations, Peter, in this country is amazing. Looking forward to seeing your coverage throughout the tournament. Hopefully, if you have time, we'll continue these conversations, both 
on the team, on the field, but everything that's going on around it because both are important. Thank you so much for taking the time and be safe. Thank you and always happy to come on whenever. That is Peter Galindo. You can find him on Twitter at Galindo PW, G-A-L-I-N-D-O-P-W. He's writing, again, for us at Sportsnet, for MLS. And check out the podcast he'll be doing great work on and always has Northern Football at Northern F-U-T-B-O-L. After the break, we go in on why is the World Cup happening in November in the first place and who sacrificed to make it happen. That's next. I'm going deep. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you're listening to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma. Growing up in that family, in that house, cheering for the reggae boys when they made the World Cup, cheering for England. It's a treat to cheer for Canada. I just hate that this tournament is mirrored in some controversy. And I want to see what Canada does to step up about it. Uh, The Human Rights Watch says they've reached out to Canada uh, to see if they'll support uh, some of the amnesty work they're doing. They've sent six letters. They haven't heard back. Now, this could be because FIFA has sent letters to uh, the sporting organizations in each country saying stick to the football. Essentially, the soccer version of shut up and dribble. So we went directly to the source. Michael Page, deputy director of North Africa and Middle East or Human Rights Watch, is going to join us to break down how did the games get to Qatar in the first place and what is the human cost of having what is already the most expensive World Cup in history. Listen and learn to Michael Page. Shall I recall the candidates? Australia, Japan, Korea, Qatar, United States of America, the winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Today we celebrate, but tomorrow the work begins. Qatar had just 12 years to complete the largest infrastructure project in World Cup history. The Gulf state had to build eight state-of-the-art stadiums, install new roads and rail lines, and expand its airport, not to mention find accommodation for over one million spectators. Organizers have never admitted to the $229 billion price tag, but Qatar's finance minister said $500 million was spent every week for years to meet the deadline. So besides the World Cup not being in the summer with us enjoying the games from a patio. I think before we talk about the migrant worker issue specifically, we should take a step back and fully understand how the World Cup got to Qatar in the first place and why it's being played when it is. Can can you give everyone a refresher as to how we got here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, World Cups are awarded by FIFA which is, you know, global soccer or global football's governing body. Back in 2010, 
there were a series of competitive bids and it was Qatar who was awarded the World Cup for 2022. Now, there were a number of criticisms related uh, to the World Cup you know, being hosted by Qatar. And among them was a real simple one, which was how are footballers, uh, soccer players and fans supposed to enjoy the games or even be safe when, you know, the temperature in Qatar in the summer, you know, like mid-July is something like 42 Celsius, you know, incredibly dangerous uh, temperatures. That was eventually changed. Essentially, it couldn't be done, right? And that's why we're having the, this World Cup in November. However, it was never, this type of protection and concern was never shown to the over 2 million migrant workers that ended up building all of this tournament infrastructure, many of whom worked in during very, very hot summers to build stadiums, expanding rail, uh, metro, metro lines, uh, uh, the airport, and some of whom who, you know, faced very serious health issues, including death, to make this possible. This is going to be the most expensive World Cup of all time. Why? does Qatar want to host the World Cup? Uh, you know, Qatar has, uh, you know, invested something like $220 billion in terms of infrastructure upgrades and expansions in order to be able to host this World Cup. So that includes uh, eight stadiums, a lot more hotels, uh, you know, as I said, kind of an expanded infrastructure in general, because, you know, there's supposed to be 1.2 million fans that, that descend on Qatar, which is a small country, you know, for this uh, next next month. And, and yeah, there is this question of like, why would you put all of that money, you know, into this, you know, one event that lasts for one month? I think for many states, in particular, those with poor human rights records, there is a real desire to use these types of mega events to just kind of launder your reputation or to like whitewash your reputation. So essentially, don't look over there on those human rights abuses. Actually, look at these kind of shiny new stadiums, these uh, really amazing, you know, football players, you know, playing at their peak for the world's uh you know, most popular, popular sport. And so I think that's something that not just in Qatar, but in, in many countries, you know, that often have uh, both terrible human rights records or poor human rights records, but also a lot of money often made from kind of fossil fuel, you know, money to, to purchase uh, and to spend for these games. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, for instance, has has tried repeatedly to host major uh, sports projects, including the F1, which they which they do host. Russia hosted the last World Cup. Um, China has hosted, you know, previous Olympics recently. So I think there's this real desire among certain states to try to bring these mega events to, to really like make your image popular. There are many footballers, you know, that, that have a global positive reputation. You know, there's a reason that, you know, Qatar has, you know, apparently brought David Beckham to, 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 you know, kind of woo, you know, global fans. But I know behind that is this reality or behind this kind of shiny image is a pretty grim reality, which is, you know, in the case of Qatar, not only is this trying to whitewash a human rights record that has many problems, but the sports washing itself 
led to very serious abuses. So all of this infrastructure building, you know, and hosting of the tournament is unfortunately directly linked to the very serious migrant labor abuses that uh, that are part of this World Cup. So not only, as I mentioned, you know, deaths, thousands of unexplained deaths of migrant workers, but also like serial wage theft, um, injuries from migrant workers, uh, people kind of essentially, you know, uh, uh, being subject to this very restrictive uh, uh, labor governance system called the kafala system or sponsorship system that gives employers just incredible power over migrant workers who, who work in Qatar. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's a, it's a shiny, this shiny image that's now being broadcast ahead of the World Cup, you know, right behind it lies a really dark uh, reality that FIFA and Qatar just really don't want people to look at. You know, it's funny, when I was listening to that answer, I wasn't sure if you said they brought David Beckham or bought David Beckham, but quite frankly, both would probably be true. Uh, it, there is a real cost to this World Cup, and as you have explained, it's a human cost. Uh, of the 2 million migrant workers you know, that have been employed in Qatar, how does their experience vary at all? Is, or does it? We... Yeah, it's a really good question, right? I mean, look at a certain at a certain point, there are there are people who are willing that want to go. You know, these jobs are are popular jobs. So, I mean, I think one way to think about it, if you're just kind of like, you know, as a, a as as a kind of casual fan, is that for these migrant workers, you know, it's akin to a, a lottery, but a lottery with very serious consequences. Some migrant workers, and migrant workers come from countries like Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Uh, uh, more recently, they've come from African countries like Kenya or Ghana. The kind of theme that the, the shared issue that they have in mind or shared motivation is they want a better life. For them and their families, right? So many of these migrant workers, they're sending the vast majority of their amount that they're earning kind of back home to families, you know, doing things like trying to get their daughter to, to, to have an education and, and pay for it. Um, and so some people, some migrant workers, they go to Qatar for several years, or even they spend years there. They make, you know, an amount of money that's, that's relatively decent. It changes their life back home. They go back home and, and essentially they, they you know, uh, uh, everything has kind of worked out well enough. Okay, but the downside of this lottery is other migrant workers go. They're often paid these kind of very high recruitment fees. Essentially, they're paying to work in Qatar. So usually when we want a job, it's the employer who's trying to recruit us to, to, to come over and then they pay us a salary. In for Qatar, because these jobs are so in demand, many people have paid uh, sometimes quite a large amount of money that they have a, a debt and they owe interest on, you know, to get these jobs. Then when they get there, many employers, because they have all this power, are incredibly unscrupulous. And so they have sometimes delayed wages for months at a time. Sometimes they've just simply stolen wages. Sometimes they've kept migrant workers in conditions of very serious abuse where it's difficult for migrant workers to switch jobs, to even at a certain point in time, leave the country. And so that is the downside of the lottery. And that's because we are in a reality where Qatar failed as a state 
to really carry out its, its obligations for human rights, to kind of oversee, to regulate this you know, migrant, migrant labor workforce, to protect them from unscrupulous employers. And uh, you know, in the worst cases, this lottery led to men's deaths, right? You know, whether from heat, whether from dangerous working conditions, and many of these deaths were uninvestigated and unexplained and uncompensated. So I think this is the, the reality that, that, that folks should have in mind when, when they're thinking about, hey, how did this World Cup come to be? Well, it came to be from a system, you know, in which many migrant workers were brought over, sometimes on incredibly false pretenses, saying, hey, we're, you're going to have a better life coming, you know, coming to, to work here and building this. And while for a few people that was the case, for others, you know, it was the worst fate imaginable. You mentioned the deaths. What is the unexplained death rate uh, in Qatar relative to what it would be in the rest of the world? So we simply here. Here's the here's the big issue: is is Donovan? We simply don't know what is the you know precise figure for the number of migrant workers who died preventable deaths building the kind of infrastructure related to to hosting this World Cup in Qatar. And we we don't know that because Qatari authorities have essentially refused to investigate, you know, many unexplained deaths of migrant workers. So I'll give you an example, right? Like if someone dies, maybe of uh, dies in their bed, so they don't die you know, on a construction site and a, a very clear accident from falling or something. They just die in their sleep. Oh, well, it could be classified as, uh, you know, natural causes. But, you know, we, for instance, know much more about how heat has tremendously dangerous consequences for the human body. It leads to heart attacks. It can lead to uh, kidney failure. It can lead to other organ failure. And so there are many migrant workers who have been classified essentially as unexplained deaths or natural causes that were likely connected to the, the working conditions that they uh, they had to face, right? I mean, just to give you like a further illustration on, on the heat problem is that there weren't even kind of set regulations that were enforced around when workers could work outside until just the past few years. And so, you know, many workers likely were severely affected by this real lack of protections around heat, but around other issues as well. And so that's what we, we have a situation where we don't really know, but uh, we do know that custody authorities don't want us to find out because they have really not done anything and really sought to avoid offering comprehensive disaggregated data on how many migrant workers have died. And they've also just failed to investigate you know, these, these unexplained deaths. So do they have an answer on what the amount of work-related deaths has been? Well, Gianni Infantino, the, the president of uh, FIFO, he, uh, I believe he said in an interview uh, not too long ago that it was only three worker deaths, which is uh, shameful. And unfortunately, this is the type of type of kind of non-response that, it, or, or just false statement that's uh, that has been regularly occurring. I think for Qatari authorities, they've said there have been, uh, you know, there have been different organizations that have documented uh, uh, some deaths, uh, but uh, Qatari authorities have really kind of refused to give any kind of comprehensive response. In terms of 
culpability, a type of death that I imagine would be tough to adjudicate would be suicide. But given the scenario and situation that you're describing, I'd imagine that would be something that you've seen. How prevalent has suicides been among migrant workers? Oh, it's such a it's such a it's such an important point about about migrant workers, you know, mental health. I mean, I think it's it's one it's one issue that's just incredibly underinvestigated, given this really uh, you know very serious kind of lack of access to to migrant workers, you know, uh, uh, health in which we again also don't know how many workers have died by suicide you know, that were linked to World Cup related projects since 2010. I think what we can say is the the physical and mental toll of some of these jobs that migrant workers have done in Qatar, building the, you know, preparing the, the country for the World Cup tournament. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you're working sometimes 10, 12 hours a day in incredibly hot conditions, often sometimes limited shade. You're, you're disconnected from your family you know, for sometimes years at a time. You know, we've talked to migrant workers who have essentially not watched their their kids grow up. And then often, especially those who are facing abuses, you have this huge emotional burden that's on place of, am I going to get paid? How am I going to get the wages that are owed to me back? What do I do about the debt and the interest that's piling up on top of me after my employer hasn't paid me? So it's another issue where, uh, I have no doubt that that the that either death by suicide or other issues around self harm are very serious, but it's not something that we really have the access to data again because there's not been a transparent set of investigations and data that's released by Qatari authorities. So many people are learning about these issues for the first time in the lead up to the World Cup, but these issues aren't. New. There's been journalists who've talked about it over the last 12 years, pressure put on by activist groups like yours and the UN. Has that public pressure over the time changed anything? I think, I think groups were more hopeful at the beginning of the outset, right? When when, when FIFA awarded the World Cup in 2010, I think it was a surprise for, for, for many reasons, um, uh, just to the kind of general global, global you know, sports fandom in Qatar and the initial questions around, you know, how can uh, football players play in the heat, etc. But then it also became a question of, oh, well, what labor reforms are actually going to, you know, be applied uh, uh, in in Qatar, you know, uh, to like essentially address these uh, migrant worker uh, issues, um, I I think now, you know, what the what the answer has been is, you know, there have been positive reforms, but these reforms have really been kind of too little, too late, and just having continued enforcement gaps. Right. And so one of the kind of stats that we've we've highlighted repeatedly has been, you know, there has been a, a positive uh, uh, there has been a, a positive change in which the Qatar's labor ministry has provided now hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation for migrant workers who have faced wage abuses very recently. However, what they refuse to do and they've rejected the idea of a compensation fund, um, what they refuse to do is really want to commit 
to applying to deal with those past abuses. So what is the amount of money migrant workers are actually owed, you know, from 2010? It must be incredible. The migrant worker issue is one of, quite frankly, many issues uh, that people rightly do have with the World Cup being in Qatar. This is a country that criminalizes same-sex relationships, doesn't allow people to advocate for gay and trans rights either. Do you have a sense of how 2S LGBTQ fans might be treated if they travel to watch their favorite team in the World Cup or the players uh, might be treated if they say something or in the case of reportedly some captains wear something that shows their support for the gay and trans community? So, I mean, I think this was another issue that people were rightfully concerned about. Um, and so, you know, that hasn't changed. And there's been a lot of pressure to have Qatar try to uh, address this, but, you know, to no avail. And recently, Human Rights Watch documented the cases of LGBT people in Qatar that were detained and mistreated in detention. Um, so that doesn't exactly feel like a great track record. While Qatari authorities, including the, the head of the country, the Emir of Qatar, have said that everyone is welcome, they often put it in a conditional form of everyone is welcome as long as you respect our culture. And you know, the challenge from 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 of course, people should respect everyone's culture, but everyone's human rights should be protected and promoted. And I think that's the tension that's at stake here. The other tension is how do us in the media cover uh, the culture and these issues? Fox, who's the broadcaster of the World Cup in the United States, says it's not going to cover these issues, just the games. Should they? Absolutely. I mean, at this point in time, I think the debate is over in terms of whether they're, whether we need a, a false divide between kind of sports and politics or, or sports and human rights. Like, look, sports are an essential part of human culture, human civilization. It's, it's, it's long been a part of kind of political issues, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. I mean, this isn't even the kind of first notable example of, of sports washing. We've long known about you know, it's it's in our history, even our like elementary textbooks, you know, around uh, the 1936 Olympics, you know, hosted by Nazi Germany. And I think this is something where, you know, these days, sports and politics are so intertwined, particularly in soccer, it's impossible not to cover it together. I mean, look, you know, we talked about sports watching earlier. There are now several Premier League teams or other kind of like high-level soccer teams or football teams, you know, in Europe that are owned essentially or linked to nation states, right? Manchester City and the UAE, uh, Newcastle United and Saudi Arabia, uh, PSG in France and, uh, and Qatar. And so I think it's absolutely essential that journalists be reporting about this and, and contextualizing it appropriately, right? I mean, many, many people are, are just tuning in now, right? It's, you know, most many people haven't traveled to Qatar or don't follow the news about it. That's, you know, under, understandable for those who, who don't live in the region. But I think it's absolutely essential that journalists really give the, the, proper, the proper context for, for how this tournament came to be, number one. And number two, what are the consequences of it? Right. I mean, if you are a fan 
if you go to cut that, or even if you just watch it on television, there is a link between you and the very serious abuses that made this tournament possible. Well, I wonder if it's possible at all, whether it's big business or us as individuals, to have any sort of relationship with Qatar, with this World Cup, and not have blood on our hands. I mentioned Fox again. One of their sponsors for their broadcasts are Qatar Airways, which is essentially the Qatari government. So for us, uh, that, that, that ad revenue is going up when we watch. Where do we fit in this line of culpability? How can we have a relationship with cheering on our favorite players and being patriotic for our nation without promoting something that's problematic in another nation? Yeah, I mean, look, global capitalism has, has, you know, unfortunately, you know, linked us, linked everyone in, in, in ways where it can be very tricky to be kind of an ethical consumer and participant, you know, uh, uh, for the products we buy, the, uh, the shows that we watch. I think here, I think it's important not to be... Uh, uh, not to just throw up our hands and say, well, nothing can be done. I think in this context, there is actually something that we, we can do or, or try to do, right? Is that, you know, in it, Qatar has made some reforms. And more than that, you know, human rights organizations, labor groups, and now a number of footballers and football associations have all called on FIFA to essentially establish a compensation fund, you know, to remedy these past serious abuses that this tournament was built on and, and try to address and leave a more positive legacy for, for uh, you know, all the abuses that took place. And I think that kind of helps us get to at least partway where we're going, which is to try to, at the very least, try to address the past abuses that occurred and that are a link to this World Cup. And, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of really positive feedback and uptake from this campaign over the past now, I think, you know, six or so months, you know, in which, a num- you know, even kind of fan public opinion polling has been very supportive of the idea that it's like, look, I'm a soccer fan. I love watching. I don't want to be linked to these serious abuses. At the very least, what we can all demand is that the workers who built all of this be paid. And for the workers who paid the worst price imaginable, that their families be compensated for what they've lost, you know, and at least try to partially remedied. So I think that's a, a great way forward. And, you know, I think for, for Canadian audience, you know, I think it's important that Canada soccer also, you know, speak out even more robustly. They, I think uh, in the past few weeks have, have released a statement saying that they support, you know, workers rights in, in a, in a vague vague way. And I think that's good. I think it would be good for them to go further and say, okay, we support workers' rights, LGBT people's rights, but we also support a compensation fund because we don't want to be linked to a tournament that doesn't pay the workers who built it what they're owed. Right. And fans can, you know, work in, in coalition with each other. I mean, fan, you know, fandom and sports fans are not solitary individuals. They're part of a collective. And so they can, you know, add their voices and demand that Canada soccer also step up, you know, step up and, and do this. 
get off the sidelines, so to speak. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, it, it's, it's something where, while I'm not optimistic, I think there is something positive that can be taken away, even with the kind of less than two weeks to go or less than, you know, very limited time left for, for this World Cup for us to do something positive around it. To date, that hasn't happened. They have 234,000 followers on Twitter. It could, you know, happen from an account, not even from an individual person. Have you received any feedback as to why Canada soccer isn't willing to take that final clear step? Uh, honestly, no. I, I'm not. I'm not really sure. You know why? Why they're they're so hesitant? And I think it's particularly the case. It's it's notable that Canada soccer not only has a particular set of, of values that that it espouses that you would hope align with workers' rights and LGBT people's LGBT people's rights, but also you know they're the 2026 co-host along with the United States and Mexico for the next World Cup. So I think. I would hope that that Canada soccer would also want to be sending a very clear signal that they, as the next co-host, are going to be great human rights stewards of the next World Cup and really set like a, a new standard for concern about human rights issues, you know, as it relates to hosting. So, you know, there's still time left, but but uh, it's it's been it's been disappointing so far to see the uptake, but especially now that there's a lot of momentum, number Germany, the US, Belgium, you know, the Netherlands football associations, the UK, all of them have supported this remedy fund, have pushed FIFA to do so. So we really hope Canada soccer lends their voice. For what likes to call itself a inclusive, progressive country, the fact that Canada is not on that list of countries is somewhat disappointing if the individuals within this country would like to try and make up for that in injury time and equalize the fact that our voice hasn't been heard from an nso standpoint what can they do where can they go to pledge allegiance and keep this conversation going yeah absolutely well like many things these days you know uh a, uh, social media is is certainly a part of that equation. You know, uh, Human Rights Watch, along with other rights groups, have called the have called for the the Pay Up FIFA campaign, easily easily searchable, and to hashtag Pay Up FIFA. You know, and it's also on our on our website that you can write to FIFA themselves. You know, demanding that they they establish this fund. You can also write to Canada Soccer on their on their website, right? And there's a contact us form that people can write and say, you know, to Canada Soccer themselves, saying that this is something that they should be publicly supporting, enthusiastically supporting. You know, and also of course you can write to Canada Soccer right on right online. I mean, that's the the both great and and downside of uh, of social media like Twitter, right, in which there is direct interaction and audience in ways that you know humans uh, uh, didn't have you know ten or fifteen years ago. So I think all of those are positive, but I think even the fact of people just kind of uh, uh, having some awareness of what the costs of this World Cup were and are, I think, is really important. Like awareness is the first step. And then, uh, and then any actions that they take, I think, uh, you know, are, are deeply appreciated. I think it's great that people care about this issue. I, I, it's great that they that fans don't want to be connected to abuses. They don't have the cynicism 
of what's often is associated with really the kind of senior leadership of, uh, of FIFA. And, you know, let's hope, uh, let's hope, you know, the people in charge hear that message. Well, the actions that you take daily on behalf of people in the Middle East and North Africa and bringing awareness to their struggle to us here in North America is deeply appreciated. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much, Donovan. What a sobering look at where we are and how we got there, why the World Cup is in Qatar and what it means. You can follow Michael on Twitter. Michael Page, at Michael A.R. Page. He's actually got a great thread. If you want even more information on what is going on and, and what you can do, uh, give him a follow. And, and Lance telling me um, Iran did not sing the national anthem today. So don't tell me that sports isn't political. Their captain has come out and said uh, they support the anti-government protests. The government wanted their star striker, Sadar Hezmoun, to not be on the team. He is in the team, did not start versus England. This is all uh, sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman who died in uh, morality, police, custody. Sports is a lot of things. It's great. But quite frankly, it is also political. We'll break down all that and more tomorrow because this story isn't going away. Thank you for not going away and listening. For Lance, who runs the boards, for show, who keeps me honest, and for you. Appreciate you. Thanks for going deep.